And we've been in the series called As We Go, talking about our partnership with God in his great commission work. And most of what we've talked about in the series has been things that we can do right here. And yet one of the parts of the Great Commission that I don't want to neglect is what comes at the end. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so this morning, I want to take a look at the book of Acts. And you can open to the book of Acts. We're going to go from chapter 2 to chapter 13 in like 20 minutes. So you might just listen, but you can also try to follow along. And we're going to take a look at something that we kind of looked, like, looked at a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we saw that that the disciples who are called on the Great Commission work didn't really travel far beyond their hometown in the course of the book of Acts, and yet the gospel somehow got to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, we'll take a look at the opposite side of that vantage point and say, okay, if the original 12 disciples did not mostly move beyond their hometown, how did the gospel get to the ends of the earth? And so we're going to run from Acts 2 to Acts 13 to answer that question. Let me pray for us as we dive in. Father, we thank you for an amazing partnership of men and women who are doing amazing work in partnership with your spirit in the country of Sri Lanka. We pray for Rajatha this morning that that you would continue to give him vision and strength and the resources that he needs to empower these church planters and raise up more to reach more villages We pray that you would use us, stir in the hearts of anyone in this room who needs to step into that uh, partnership in that country or one of the other 16 countries that we partner with and support a church planter or a pastor, allow folks to step out of uh, their vocation so that they can make ministry their vocation in a country of the world. We pray that you would continue to use us to be a church that grows our ability to partner with what your spirit is doing in these movements around the world. We thank you for just the ability this last year to partner with more and more planters and pastors and churches and movements. We pray that that would continue. We pray for us, that you would show us our part as individuals to play in your global work. For anyone in this room wrestling with the question of, is it just enough to give to missions or do I have to do something more? We pray that as we look at this text, you would show us how we can partner with you in the work that you've called us to do. We pray that you would open our eyes to something new today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church of God is an unstoppable force, amen? In the history of the church, we've seen that. And in the history of the church, we've seen that the problem is not that the movement is often stopped. The problem in the history of church is that the movement is often not started. There are Christians, millions, billions of Christians around the world who are almost like unactivated missionaries where God is ready to commission them in partnership with him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and yet they are ill-equipped, or they're scared, or they haven't received some sort of calling, or they they don't know what to do, and so they sit. For a lot of our lives, many of us have kind of sat and said, okay, God, what is the role that you have for me to play in your global expansion of your kingdom? Is it enough to give? Is it enough to pray? Do I need to go? I know there are people in this room who've wrestled in seasons of life with, maybe I should be someone who goes overseas, who should be commissioned and sent. Maybe God's calling me. Some of us have done that short term, we've come back, or medium term, have come back and just wondered, am I doing enough? God, your calling is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and the calling for us as Christians is to partner with you in that work. And so, God, how do I, just a normal person in the East Bay, 
make a difference in seeing unreached people around the world come to know Jesus. One of the most impactful stories for me in, in missions history was a story that just as a few hundred years ago in England, there was a man named William Carey who started to grow in this passion towards the global movement of God and yet realized that the folks in his congregation and denomination weren't really on the same page as him with this passion for outreach. And so at one day he was attending a denominational meeting and sat through the meeting. I don't know if you've ever been to a denominational meeting, but sat through the meeting, listened to all the things that were talked about. And then the custom of that denomination was that at the end of the meeting, the chairman of the meeting would, would put out a kind of a discussion question. And so the chairman turned to William Carey and said, William, can you give us a discussion question to end our time today? William Carey brought up the question that had been on his heart. He said, well, I've been thinking about the Great Commission. And the Great Commission says that Jesus will be with us always as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we believe that when Jesus said, I will be with you always, that, that that's true today. He's with each one of us always. And everyone's like, amen, amen. William Carey says, so if it's true that the last part of the Great Commission is true today for each of us individually, shouldn't the call of God to take the gospel to the nations be on us individually today as well? And for some reason in the 1800s, this is a very controversial question. You know, some of us think, yes, amen, absolutely. But the chairman of the meeting looked at him and said, young man, you are too enthusiastic he said, young man, this is one of my favorite, it's not a good one, but favorite missions quote, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. And this is the posture of the church in many regions for many years towards the global expansion of the gospel. Yes, God wants to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, God's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you know what? God doesn't need us to help him. He's got it. He does his thing. William Carey's question just kept percolating in him. And he actually wrote a book with one of the most boring but intriguing titles of all time. He wrote a book called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means in the Conversion of the Heathens. You know, in modern day English, that means I'm doing a study on whether or not Christians today are obligated to do something to bring the gospel to lost people. And as much as we think that that's a crazy thing to study... Because we know the answer, yes, of course, yes, God has called us all to be part of his global work. And two things are true. William Carey's work actually pivoted the Western church's mentality towards missions. So the reason that you think the way you think is because of a work like that. And two, I think the same thing that was true in the 1800s is true today. There is a call in the Bible for Christians in these seats to go and share the gospel across the world. And many of us, we're not doing it. We don't know how. We, we don't know if we're supposed to use means to engage lost people in other nations. We don't, what are those means? What do we do? How do we engage? Well, we're all the way over here, and the lost nations are all the way over there, right? And there are... There are people in our own region we've talked about who need Jesus, and so that's part of it. But, but if all of the Great Commission is true for all of us, 
How do we partner with that nation's part? And the interesting thing is, as we look at the book of Acts this morning, we'll see that the early church had to wrestle with that same question. They knew that Jesus was calling them to take the gospel out there, but they had no idea how. And so what I want to do is watch how Jesus prepared the church to be a church that reaches the nations. And this morning, as we do that study, and as we look through those 11 chapters of Acts 2 through 13, I want us to see how we can be a church community who's prepared by the Spirit to be a church community who does our work to reach the lost nations. And so we'll jump into the book of Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2 is one of many of our favorite passages in Scripture, right? Some of you have this mentality of church around Acts 2, 42 and 43 that says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayer, right? They gathered together. They met in homes. It was beautiful. They had this community. They shared everything they had. And, and that's how we've pictured church. It wasn't until this week that as I did this study, I realized, you know what? That was an early, early version of the church that had not yet figured out how to do their part in fulfilling the Great Commission, Right, Acts 2 was at the very beginning where they were still just learning what it means to be Christians. And so all they had was each other. All they had was the fellowship. All they had was prayer time. All they had was an opportunity to share. And it was beautiful and it was amazing. But it was a church that had not yet been fully formed. You know, the more monumental thing that happens in Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. Have you studied Pentecost before? Pentecost is when they're sitting in a room. Like Jesus told him to. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised. All right? He said, you're going to receive power when the spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they're waiting, and they're praying for the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, the spirit arrives. And something like tongues of fire comes on all of these crowd that are gathering and praying. And all of a sudden, all of these disciples start speaking the gospel in foreign languages they've never studied. I don't know what they did. I just picture them looking at each other like, what is happening? Right? They're just sharing the gospel. And this ruckus is caused. And all these people come from up in Jerusalem where there's been a big religious festival happening. And when these people arrive, they hear the gospel being preached in all their original languages. The people from Africa are coming and hearing the gospel in African languages. The people from up near the, the Rome area are hearing the gospel in these other Greek dialects. These people from all over the world are hearing the gospel in their original language. And some people say, oh, these guys are drunk. And other people say, this is amazing. And the disciples look at each other in Acts 2.12, and it says they were amazed and perplexed. And they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? People from all nations are hearing the gospel. What does this mean? I'm speaking French. What does it mean? I was going to say that in French, but I don't know French. Maybe the Pentecost moment will happen right now. I think there was a real question underneath this, like, what does it mean question? What does this mean for our church? Are we supposed to go as individuals and scatter from this room and just start going to foreign countries and hoping that new languages pop out of our mouths? Is that what this means? And yet we don't see a sense in the book of Acts that God is saying, okay, now that you know French, go. Now that you can speak in Ethiopia, go. Instead, they stay. The Spirit doesn't say go. They're just looking around and trying to wonder, what does all of this mean? What is God doing? How is this going to work? And the one thing that we can see that, that this moment at Pentecost meant for the disciples that they were starting to wrestle with in the early book of Acts it's like God was saying to each of them, I am going to use you in my plan to reach the nations. 
I think as we look at the Great Commission today, we can take the same thing to the bank. God wants to use you. He is going to use you in his plan to reach the nations. That's just what he's going to do. Maybe you'll learn a foreign language on accident. Maybe, probably not. Maybe you'll be called overseas as a missionary. Maybe, probably not. That doesn't happen that often, even in Acts. Maybe the guy's going to do something unique he's never done with anyone before in the history of the world. Maybe. Whether or not God does something totally unnatural in your life compared to the friends and the other Christians in the world, and there's a promise in the Great Commission, there's a, a promise in that Pentecost moment that God is going to use you in his plan to reach the nations. You know, the problem in the early church was that and not only did they not know how to go to foreign countries and speak foreign languages, but there was a lot of hard work that needed to happen in the church before they could be equipped to reach the nations of the world. As we, as we think about the history of religion and we read the New Testament and the Gospels and see how people reacted to Jesus, we see how strongly people reacted over and over again to any time someone like Jesus or Paul or any disciple said, I'm going to take the Gospel to the lost people, to the Gentiles, to the heathens. The reaction from the religious people was the same as the reaction William Carey got in his Baptist denomination in England in 1888 or whatever. There's this aversion. No, 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 The gospel's for us. It's for us. It's not for them. It's not for people outside our walls. It's for people inside these doors. It's not for people in other nations. It's for Israel, right? It's not for non-Jews. It's for Jewish folks. Like, this is who the gospel, this is who this message is for. In the early book of Acts, Christianity was a Jewish expression of faith. There's these Jewish folks who incorporated Jesus as their Messiah, and that's all that it went. And so there was this hesitation to involve anyone besides Jewish people in the expansion of what God was doing. And so there's a lot of heart work that needed to take place before the gospel could go. If you studied the first four chapters of the book of Acts, you would be impressed, amazed, whatever, at how often the Jewish people are spoken of by the leaders who stand up and talk. Right? My fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites, fellow citizens of Israel, Israelites, right? over and over and over again, their audience, their audience, their audience, their audience, their audience are the Jewish Christians living in Israel or the non-Christian Jewish folks living in Israel. Right? It's not until Acts 5 that you start hearing about non-Jewish people emerging in God's plan. But Acts chapter 6, there's a struggle within the church because there are Greek Jewish folks and Hebraic Jewish folks and they're starting to argue within the new Christian church. And so they separate them out a little bit, and they have a bunch of Greek guys, this whole list of Greek names, and they say these men are going to be the deacons who take care of the Greek part of the church, and then the Hebraic part of the church will, will be over here, right? and so they're trying to figure out how to navigate these race relations within the Christian church. That man Stephen, who was one of those deacons, gets called up for being a Christian in front of the Jewish religious authority, and they put him to death for his faith. And when Stephen dies, the church starts being persecuted, and they start scattering for the first time. They leave Jerusalem. As they leave Jerusalem, one of the disciples, Philip, is on a road, and he meets someone from Ethiopia, a royal official. And he just has an opportunity to share the gospel with this royal official, this non-Jewish, non-Israeli, non-Hebrew person hears the gospel and responds and is grafted into the faith. And so Philip is starting to take part in this global work. 
And then in Acts 9 and Acts 10, God starts to engage with Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he realizes that Peter has some heart work that needs to happen before he's ready for his church to reach the nations. And so God sends Peter on this missions experience, kind of like a retreat, where he has to go to a a house of this man Simon the Tanner, an unclean person. And while he's at this unclean person's house, he sees this vision where God is trying to show him, I'm going to accept people you think are unclean. I'm going to accept people you think are far from me. I'm going to accept people that you think are not in the plan of God. And then these people come to Peter and say, come share the gospel to us. Come up to this house. God is doing something among the Gentiles. And Peter's gut response is, I can't. They're unclean. But then he's thinking about the vision. Peter says, I think the gospel is for people that are not like me. I'll go. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this heart realization where he tells the church, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is 10 chapters, almost 11 chapters into the book of Acts. The church is starting to get ready for their mission's work by preparing to accept folks from other cultures within their movement. I I don't want to move too quickly beyond what God is doing in the early church because I think this is something that God has to do in, in every church. Because I think one of the problems with that church in England that we talked about, one of the problems with a lot of churches here in America and other countries of the world that a lot of times the reason that we don't reach people from other nations is because we like to huddle up with people who are just like us. We like to be in communities with people who have the same amount of money as us, who have the same background as us, who have the same race as us, who are the same everything as us. We just find these like-minded groups and we huddle together. And it might be beautiful like Acts 2 where we share our resources and we pray and we do great things with these people who are just like us. But we see in the first 10 chapters of Acts that God is trying to get his people to look outside of the folks who are just like them and onto the nations of the world with people who are so unique from them in so many different ways and yet have the same heart, the same soul, the same need for Christ as them. And the thing that I see is I look at the way that God prepared the church to reach the nations is that before you can reach the nations, your heart needs to be willing to embrace all people. And that's the first step. And if you hate people who aren't like you, you are not going to be used very well in God's plan to reach the nations of the world. Before your heart is ready, or this church is ready to reach the nations, our hearts, our individual hearts, need to be ready to embrace all people. And I would guess in a room like this, in a region like this, most of us would say, absolutely, amen. I don't think I struggle with what they struggled with back then. I get it, right? I love being part of a multicultural community in the Bay Area. I love it. And I know we've got work to do, right? We're thinking about who comes to our house and who's in our small group and who do we hang out with. And there's a lot of homogeneity. There's a lot of people that look just like us or act just like us or come just like us in our circles. And we, can, we all have work to do. In the same way, I don't think, I think most of us, we get it. And God's heart is for everyone. There is no difference. So his call for us is one that we can activate because we do, we love people. And for us as a church, one of the things that we consider a sign of health is when the diversity of our church body matches the diversity we see in the outside community. 
We've seen churches, and maybe you've seen churches over the years, who started out kind of matching the demographic of their community, and as the community changed, the church stayed the same. And so now we've got this area that's become this upper-class area, this area that's become this lower-class area, this area that's changed this racial demographic, and the church looks totally foreign from the world outside. We've always, as our church, looked at that and said, that's an unhealthy sign, right? That means there's not a lot of new people from the community being reached and coming in. And so every few years, we kind of take a look at our church congregation and just ask the question, how well does our congregation reflect the diversity of the region that God has planted us in? And I've talked to a ton of you about this, just how encouraging it is that every time we do that, we see that as our community is changing, our church keeps changing. Right? If you've been part of our church for 50 years, this room looks very different in terms of who's in it than it looked like 50 years ago. And the region looks very different than who was in it 50 years ago. And we praise God that because we are a church who's passionate about reaching people who are far from God, when folks who just represent all the nations of the world out there hear about Jesus in equality, they come in here and our church changes as our culture changes. And we've always been encouraged by that. We feel like it's a sign of health. That when you're reaching the, the world that's outside your doors, your church will start looking like the world outside our doors. And last time we did the study, we found there were a couple different areas that, that really aren't represented well in our church. Everywhere else, we saw great representation of every segment of the demographic. The two areas were 45% of households within a radius of our church at that time spoke Spanish in the home. We thought, man, we don't have a lot of primarily Spanish speakers in our church. And second, there are a fair amount of people right around our church who live beneath the poverty line. And we don't see a, a ton of folks who are impoverished and need that level of resourcing in our church family. And so we started talking about, okay, what can it mean for us to do a better job engaging with segments of the community that Jesus loves and many of us have not yet started rubbing shoulders with. And so we went to work because we truly believe that God loves all people and it's our job to love all people. And if we do our job loving all people, God will reach all people for Jesus. I think that makes us a healthy church. That doesn't necessarily make us a missionary church. When the Bible talks about missions, when the Bible talks about the nations, it's primarily talking about an expansion that's happening away from the region of your church. Right? This idea we talked about a few weeks ago, the gospel starting in one place and expanding to the ends of the earth, going to other countries. Right? So Sri Lanka is more of a missions engagement, reaching folks in the East Bay. It's not a missions engagement. That's just what churches are supposed to do. And so even if you're a person who, who has a heart for all people, there's a chance that at the same time, you're thinking, but how do I connect with people who are far from me geographically as well? I spent a lot of time this week studying Acts 11, 12, and 13 because something happens in those chapters that is new. After Peter's revelation that God accepts people from all nations and he doesn't show favoritism, all of a sudden we see that the church is prepared for a new type of movement to be formed. And the Apostle Paul is called into ministry explicitly to the Gentiles. Barnabas from Cyprus comes in and meets Paul, and they converge to this, this city called Antioch. And in Antioch, they start reading, reaching Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Jews and Gentiles all are coming together. And instead of creating a separation within the church that's happened for thousands of years, they made one church out of all kinds of people. And when we see, if you look at Acts 13, 1 sometime, you'll see that the leadership of the church at Antioch was a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational leadership. 
We've got someone from the Mediterranean, someone from Northeast Israel, someone who is uh, from a privileged background and a, and a political background. We've got a person from North Africa, a person from Sub-Saharan West Africa. We've got this whole international cohort of leadership within the church, and it's representing the nations of the world. And in Antioch, something happens that hasn't happened before. The church gets a new name. The Bible tells us that they were called Christians first at Antioch because what they had formed was something new, never seen before in the world, which was people from all nations gathering together in one body. And then the church started to get to work. They took up an offering and started helping more under-resourced churches and sending money around the world. They started praying and fasting, and God gave them a heart for the nations. And so they raised up Paul and Barnabas and sent them on a missionary journey. All three missionary journeys in the book of Acts starts from the church at Antioch, and it became the place where the gospel Great Commission call started activating for the first time in Christian history. A multi-ethnic, multinational church that was passionate for the gospel started going out and changing the world. If you want something to take to the bank today and start to think about how to apply it into your life, here's the statement for you. A multi-ethnic church with a passion for the expanse of the gospel is an unstoppable force in the world. I know you might be thinking, well, how does multi-ethnic matter in all that? What about just a regular church with a passion for the gospel being an unstoppable force? I think that we see in the scriptures that there is this multiplying effect when people from all nations are passionate about reaching all nations. An example in our own church we finished that study a few years back and realized that there was a, a missing segment of our church community in the Spanish-speaking demographic. So we started to connect with some of the folks within our church community who speak Spanish primarily or came from Spanish-speaking countries and, and started saying, hey, is there a passion that you have to reach the folks in your circles? And everybody said, absolutely, we've been praying for that. And so we started this ministry and we said, let's not just plant a church that speaks Spanish. Let's find a way to create a community that speaks Spanish in their community, but still part of our church so we can be one church with people from different countries. And so they started this ministry a few years ago, and it's just exploded in numbers. It's gotten really big. It's gotten big. amazing. People's lives are being changed here. But at the same time, as these folks, who many of whom have come from other countries and speak Spanish here in the States, are starting to gather together as part of our church we're starting to see that God is working to reach people in the countries that they've emigrated here from. People are coming to Christ and they're sharing with people back home and now villages and cities are changing in these Latin America and Mexico and in these different regions south of California. The people are coming up here and they're getting connected into our community and then they're going back to other places. They're moving along and the world is changing because we are able to reach a new segment of the world by engaging with people in our local community who are part of our family who have ties and connections in other regions of the world. This is one of the reasons over the last several years we've changed the focus of our missions program, right? William Carey launched this amazing movement where Westerners were being deployed into foreign countries learning the language, right? You've heard about William Carey, Hudson T Taylor, uh, William Wilbur, not William, uh, David Livingston, right? These different people who are commissioned to leave their home and go into foreign countries, and some of them are killed, some of them survive, some of them learn the language, some of them burn out, right? And, and just kind of sending folks in to try to change the world by going. There's a lot of problems with that and a lot of beauty in that. So the last 20 years or so at our church, we said, okay, well, maybe instead of primarily looking to send Westerners into the field, maybe we should start looking for movements of God where he's already working. Maybe we should find people like Rajatha in Sri Lanka and say, you know what, we want to enter into a ministry relationship with you. Do you need anything? 
Now, you don't need training from us. You're killing it, right? You don't need anything from us, but maybe you need resources. Maybe you need motorcycles, right? Maybe you saw our Christmas catalog last year. There are a lot of needs with our ministry partners overseas. And so we're building and building and building these relationships with indigenous networks of church planting pastors now in 17 countries of the world. And through this passion that we have as a multi-ethnic church to reach the multinational world, we've been able to see more and more and more people come to Christ by the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And just last year, we, we, we stepped into our 17th country that we're partnering with in our gospel work. Monthly, we support over 1,000 church planters around the world. And in 2019, we accomplished a goal that, that we've been praying about for the last 20 years which in 2019, for the first time, we gave over a million dollars to international work and missions. Isn't that cool? So if you're thinking about, well, what does that mean for me? How do I connect in the work that God has for me? How do I be a great commission Christian? And I think, first of all, your heart needs to be ready to embrace all the nations and the cultures of the world. God has, be encouraged, God has placed you in a very international, multicultural, multinational place And so there are opportunities you have every day to connect with the nations, right? Think about it this way. If you've got a neighbor from from a country that's far from here and you bring the gospel to your neighbor, you're going to affect a circle of influence that they have in another country. And that's even that is missions work in and of itself. As you grow in your community, maybe your home community, having a diverse home community, you can start rubbing shoulders and growing in your faith and growing other people's faith and affecting the nations of the world they're connected with. And as we as a church start building connections organically and on purpose with people around the world and movements around the world, we'll have opportunities to pray for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka or Thailand or China. We'll have opportunities to give and resource folks. We'll have opportunities to have folks come here and share with us what God is doing in their countries. We'll have opportunities to be a church that has relationships around the world and thereby impact all the nations of the world through those beautiful, spirit-filled relationships. You might have a unique way of stepping into that, but in a sense, sense, all of us have the same way. Love the nations, abide in Christ, love people, be part of a community that represents the nations, and look for opportunities for you to use your resources, your time, your words, yourself, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move into communion.